If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, if not, fear not. Uh, our text will be on the screen. We are wrapping up this genealogy of Jesus this morning. Uh, all that will lead us on Christmas Eve then to consider Matthew's rendering of the birth of Jesus and how it sits in that reality of this genealogy. So, we'll pick up where we were last. And if you remember last week, we were talking exile, return from exile, and a guy with a long name that started with a Z, right? Zerubbabel. Do you remember him? So we will pick up right there, verse 13. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This morning, we're looking at the central figure uh, of a central figure of the arrival of Jesus and this genealogy of Jesus, a man named Joseph, who was the earthly father of Jesus. Matthew goes on to tell the story of Joseph in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, uh, we'll talk about this in a second, that's actually a really poor translation. The word is actually, Joseph was righteous. Joseph was a righteous man. So forget all the law stuff. So uh, because Joseph was a righteous man, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce or to send her away quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The Word of God. Joseph, I think we can characterize his story with a singular word. And that word would be the word humility. In many ways, this describes Joseph's existence and his posture. And I would suggest these are things to be modeled and had significant impact on the earthly life of Jesus. Joseph was, uh, by nature, a man of humble means. 
We know that, uh, though it's not stated overtly, because we can read into many of the things that we are told about him uh, here and in other places in Scripture. We know, for instance, that Joseph was a carpenter. Uh, the Greek word is tectone. Tectone uh, could be a carpenter. It probably has a bigger meaning to be like a builder. Uh, some people suggest he was a stonemason that helped to build cities. We really don't know exactly what he did with this. But we do know that in the sort of order or ranking of things socioeconomically, that to be a tectone uh, or to be an artisan, a builder type, meant that you were in the lower rungs of the wealthy uh, to poor scale in uh, the society of the day. And, and so much so that artisans almost always had to be farmers on the side. Right? And so they were growing their own stuff and doing their business because they needed that in order to make ends meet. We further know the reality of his poverty because when Jesus is old enough to be dedicated in the temple, they make an offering. And you might remember this, but the offering that Mary and Joseph make is an offering of a pigeon. Now, the law permitted this kind of offering specifically for people who uh, were poor, that couldn't afford greater offerings. And so we understand the status of who Joseph was and the reality that was true of him. However, Joseph is of royal blood. <laughs> the thing the genealogy is telling us this whole way through is that Joseph can trace his destiny all the way back to David. And so in some sense, you have Joseph who is royal, but he's no king. right? Joseph who has a bloodline, but society says is just another guy. In fact, it's interesting that Joseph and his family live in and around a town called Nazareth. Nazareth, in the original language, it means branch, right? And it was given that name because a segment of the royal family went and lived there. A branch of the royal family went and lived in Nazareth. So you have what used to be luxurious and glorious kings and royal people who are now artisans and builders and farmers living in a place. And what's more, only a couple of miles north of them was a city that was being rebuilt in utter glamour called Sephoris. It was being rebuilt by Herod Agrippa. And he was rebuilding it to be a seat of authority and a seat of the king and the government for all of Galilee. Built in Roman society and Roman architecture and Roman glory. Some scholars have suggested that Joseph might have been helping to build that city by the nature of his work. Again, these are guesses. We have no idea if that's true or not. What we do know is that this royal bloodline is toiling in, yeah, on the sidelines of a huge royal city that's being built in the glamour and the splendor of it. You should imagine the juxtaposition of what it would be like to be Joseph in this reality. To trace your heritage back to David, but to be living the kind of life that he had. Now, historians tell us that several generations later, the Roman emperors discovered that in this town of Nazareth was royal blood. And so as Romans were off to do, anything that could possibly be a rebellion, they wanted to squash. And so they brought these men all the way to Rome 
to execute them. Uh, But before they did, they looked at their hands, and their hands were calloused and worn and torn. And they scoffed and laughed at them and said, you're no royalty. And they dismissed them back home. This is the humble means that Joseph's story finds its backdrop to. But Joseph is not just a man of humble means. He's a man of a humble posture. And this becomes truly significant for us because in this way, he embodies the full human life that Jesus is going to live in important ways. First, we see Joseph's humility in his care for Mary. Now, we oftentimes read this story in its entirety, and rightly so. And so we know the end before we even read the beginning. We know an angel is coming to talk to Joseph. We know what happened to Mary. But we need to put ourselves in Joseph's position. Joseph isn't in on this secret. What he knows is that his wife has gone to be with her relative Elizabeth, and she's come back, and she's clearly pregnant. That's what he knows. And he's processing this in the midst of what would have to be incredible pain and hurt, and perhaps the realities of betrayal that he's feeling in the moments. This is not uh, just some spiritual story that's set aside. These are real people with real emotions and real livelihoods. Imagine you in his position and what that might have felt like. And so when we read the story that way, we begin to see that what Joseph is doing here before the angel ever comes and explains the situation to him is actually incredibly humble and gracious. Because in the midst of the betrayal and the pain and the hurt and the agony of what he's experiencing, Joseph refuses to do a couple of things that I think would be quite natural for many of us. The first is he refuses to act in vengeance. If you've ever been hurt or betrayed or been devastated in some way, isn't your first inclination some kind of vengeance? You might not be overly aggressive saying, I'll get them. But deep within your spirit, there's a sense in which they'll get theirs. You know? And not just in vengeance, but Joseph also doesn't act in order to humiliate her. Right? That whole language of publicly exposing her, now the original language is really making a scene. Right? Joseph doesn't use this to make a scene. He's not off explaining to everyone else what happened here and, and, and shoving what appears to be her misdeeds in front of everyone for everyone to see. Fascinating. Well, why does he do that then? How does he not act in this way? I think the answer is in that word, diakosune, right? Righteousness. He's a righteous man. And what that really means is that he wants to live life the way God wants him to live life. This is the best definition I can give you of the word righteousness. So, just marrying it to the Old Testament law is an unfair use of the term. And so this is the thing that's directing how Joseph is processing these realities. It's directing his posture of humility towards his wife. What's fascinating to me, and we have to pause and talk about this, is that Joseph doesn't use his righteousness as a weapon against his would-be wife. Now, all too often in religious circles, that's what happens, isn't it? 
Someone does something and we use our righteousness as a weapon against them, either in vengeance or to humiliate them. But not Joseph. His righteousness is a means of humility. His whole response towards Mary is one of care and protection. Think about this. That in the midst of this great would-be betrayal of him, his heart is for the protection of his betrayer. How fascinating. Jesus would kind of live into that story a little bit, wouldn't he? We see an incredible sense of humility. So we have to pause and we have to ask then, what is it like for you? Have you had an experience like this? Maybe not as grand, maybe smaller, maybe many. How did you respond? Or how would you respond? And what would it mean to respond in humility? To actually be pursuing the care and the protection of the one who has sinned against or harmed you. Now we need to pause and make a disclaimer here, right? Because Joseph didn't just say, oh well, this is my lot in life, right? He still pushed for a sense of separation here, right? So Christian forgiveness, as some would suggest, is always just being a consistent doormat that anyone can beat you up and do whatever they want to you. That's not the case, right? And it's important for us to understand what's going on here. But even in this sense of separation, Joseph is doing it in the pursuit of care and protection for Mary, not for himself. Really important stuff. But it's not just his posture towards Mary. Because ultimately, humility is a posture that comes first and foremost towards God. And we see this in Joseph. Because God, understanding Joseph's heart, meets him and says, it's time to let Joseph in on the secret plan, the thing that I'm up to here. And I don't know about you, but getting that news, I'm not sure would have made it any better, right? I mean, in some sense, if you're willing to believe the angel's message, which hopefully we would, we would say, okay, there's not been infidelity or betrayal here. But the thing that you're asking is no less difficult (laughs) to embrace. But once again, we find in Joseph a humble posture that embraces God's particularly unique and challenging call on his life. Listen, Humility is deference. And humility towards others is deference that leads to their care. But humility towards God is deference that leads to our obedience to God. Does this make sense? And all of these things, humility itself, is built on the foundation of love. Right? So you can't be humble. Listen to this, it's really important. You can't be humble because you're going to go home and try to be humble. Right? That's an act of legalism. It's an act of self-righteousness. And it's a pillar that's going to come crashing down when the weight of whatever comes is too heavy for that to hold it. But if there's true affection and love for God because of an embrace of God's love for you that leads to a posture of humility, that's the kind of foundation that supports 
the incredible things that Joseph actually does. Humility towards God is deference that leads to obedience. Think about this with me for a minute. God shows up and he says to Joseph, okay, your wife hasn't betrayed you. She's pregnant. He's not your kid. He's born of the Holy Spirit. You can figure out if you would process all of that in real time and make sense of that. You, I don't know. But my guess is the angel was somewhat convincing, right? And Joseph sees this. But he's still left with a choice. Think about this. Like, the difference between Mary and Joseph, there's many differences between Mary and Joseph in the story. One of the most profound differences between Mary and Joseph in the story is Mary doesn't get a choice, right? She's full-on conscripted. Now, some people believe there's more choice in that than others, and you can wrestle through that. But in some sense, God comes to Mary and says, you're having a baby. In another sense, God comes to Joseph and says, Mary's having a baby. I'd like for you to take her as your wife. Joseph's got a choice to make in this situation. What's he going to do? How's he going to process it? What's going to happen? But what we find in Joseph, and it's not just in this story, but it's in other stories where he shows up, is that Joseph's obedience is not even a hashed-out reality over time. It's actually portrayed to us in all the narratives as quite immediate and quite intentional. Like the, the, the writer here, and it's, it doesn't show up a lot in our translation, and, it's, and again in chapter 2, when uh, you remember the, the Magi come, and Herod wants to, wants to kill Jesus, and so God speaks to Joseph in a dream, says go to Egypt. In both cases, the, word, the, the Greek word the, like immediately or instantly is used often in both of these stories. The sense is like Joseph gets up and he goes, right? He's not hashing through these things. He's not, well, should I or shouldn't I? He's not making pro and con lists, right? And I'm not saying any of that's bad. I'm just saying that to say for Joseph, obedience towards God, a humble posture towards God was something decided prior to this reality. Make sense? So that when this comes, he already has a posture that's ready to receive from God and follow God even in the midst of challenges. That's a lesson for us, church, right? That every day of our lives, we should be culturing a posture of obedience that comes out of a love for God so that when God speaks to us, we're able to say, I'm ready, and we go. Joseph had encultured this in his life. And he moves in obedience to God. And let's just be honest. This is a reputation killer for Joseph. Not that he had the world's greatest resume. I mean, he's got Davidic bloodlines, but on the socioeconomic status, he's at the bottom. But even in that reality, how many people are buying the story that Joseph's going to tell to explain what's really happened here? And maybe he doesn't even tell the story to anyone. And so society is left to form their own opinions about what's going on in this family. And Joseph, in embracing Mary, is basically saying, I'm okay with that. Because it doesn't matter to me what society says about who I am. That's a settled matter for me. Because far more important for me to follow God and what He's called of me than to have some kind of reputation in the world that I've earned for myself. 
It's really easy to gloss over some of these things, isn't it, church? We have to pause and ask ourselves, how would we respond? God asks us to do something that would radically change the way everyone close to you thought about you, right? Or perceived you. In fact, we know later in the Gospels, there's reference made to this, that all of the town went on believing that Jesus was, excuse my language, but a bastard child, right? That didn't die down or go away. This was something that hung on to it. And Joseph, because of a posture of humility, moves forward in his obedience to God. But ultimately, Joseph's humility is shown in his posture by his willingness to embrace this new identity. Did you catch it at the end of the genealogy? Like we get to Joseph, and what does he say? And he was married to Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus. It wasn't, and Joseph begat Jesus. Because that's not how it happened biologically. Joseph, when he's agreeing to marry Mary, is in essence agreeing to become nothing so that Jesus might become something. Does that make sense? This becomes an ongoing reality in the Gospels. It's really a call on our lives in so many ways. Joseph is agreeing to a whole new identity by embracing this call. That is that whatever his particular role in the program of God is, he's up for it. Whether there's glory or laud or anything like that for him in the mix. Joseph, in marrying Mary, and then ultimately in naming Jesus, has taken legal steps, in essence, to adopt Jesus as his own. There's a sense in which, and Joseph probably had come to this conclusion far earlier in his life, that I'm never going to be king, right? I can trace my ancestry all the way back to David, but I'm never going to sit on a throne. And in fact, if you trace Joseph's genealogy, and his name was in Matthew's there, there's this king in there called Jeconiah. If you go back and read some of the story of Jeconiah, you know that he was not a good king. And because of his um, deceit and because of his disordered life, God said that no descendant of Jeconiah will ever sit on my throne. So even from prophecy, this was reality. But what God was offering to Joseph, who never would be king, was a chance to be super close to the one who is the rightful king. Does this make sense? Joseph embraces it. My guess is, is overjoyed at some level of this glory that is afforded to him. What's fascinating, again, is that after the birth narratives are over and the early infancy narratives of Jesus are over, we don't hear of Joseph again. It leads most scholars to believe that he died before Jesus began his public ministry. Some scholars have even concluded that he was an older man, maybe even widowed and therefore remarried, and Mary was a second wife for him. We don't know. It's all possible. We do know that he's not around in Jesus' public ministry, but his mom is, right? And so in every sense of the, of the reality, Joseph is embracing, on some level, all of the hard work of rearing Jesus and zero glory. 
Now, I'm not minimizing what Mary did at all. Incredibly hard and having to see her son crucified, all these things. But Mary's story is central to the Gospel story. Joseph, this is what we get, and then he's gone. But my guess is, we don't have record of this, my guess is Joseph okay, was okay with that. Because the glory of the one who was coming was worth the full investment of his life. I wonder, as you think about yourself and the particular call that God has on you uh, through Scripture, or maybe He's spoken directly to you in some ways, what is your posture towards that? How ready are you to go? Are you willing to embrace it even if there's no glory in it? Even if long before anything comes of it, you're gone. True love, true humility, true embrace of God is characterized in this way. And so into the world comes Jesus through the Virgin Mary, reared by Joseph. And my guess is that Joseph has an incredible influence and the earthly life of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus is this close to God the Father, but has set aside his divinity and his moments on earth, and therefore his influence in these ways. And we see in Jesus these characteristics of Joseph, but played out in living color and in huge ways. Because Jesus, in his earthly life, would have been described as a man of humble means. Would he not have? One of my very favorite passages of Scripture, in all of Scripture, and you're like, we know because you bring it up all the time, is Philippians chapter 2. You really ought to know and memorize this verse. It was a a song that the ancient church used to sing because it was so central to their faith. And here Paul just, just quotes it. This is about Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, right? <laughs> He's humble. He's submitting. And his humble means means leaving the glory of heaven to enter into the anonymity of a manger and a family engaged in a life of poverty. Because that's exactly where God's rescue had to come from. In the same way that Joseph in his toil could see Sephorus and its glory, Jesus in his toil on earth could see heaven and its glory. And yet, engaged in his humble means. But it's not just that Jesus entered into this world humbly. It's that his life and his ministry were characterized by his humility. Listen to how Paul goes on in recording this early hymn. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus has a posture of humility towards God the Father. You see it? 
And it's humility that's built on a foundation of love is expressed through deference that leads to obedience. We know it's deference because as the moment of the cross comes near for Jesus, He's trying to pray His way out of it, right? He's just like us. We've tried to pray our way out of things too. Far less than this. But Jesus at the end says, not my will, but your will be done. He's obedient to God in the ultimate act of surrendering his life. But think about it with me for a minute, church. This is not just an act of humility and obedience to God. That's first and foremost, no doubt about it. But Jesus' death on the cross is an act of humility towards you and me. Towards humanity. It's an act of deference built on the foundation of love that manifests itself in care and protection. Just like Joseph towards Mary. Joseph presumed that Mary had been unfaithful to him. And what what other assumption could he have made? The Bible constantly, especially in the Old Testament, speaks of humanity's relationship towards God as that of one betrothed to be married to the other. Right? That we are betrothed to be married to God. We're His bride in waiting. And all throughout the Old Testament, God constantly says things like, don't take any other gods before me. What he's actually saying in marriage language is, don't be unfaithful to me. Or put more succinctly, don't cheat on me. But your life, and my life, and all of humanity's life is characterized not by the assumption of betrayal, but by the reality of betrayal. We have taken other gods. We have been unfaithful to God. We are pregnant with the sin of our misdeeds. And Jesus has every right to show up for vengeance. Or to show up for our public humiliation. To put us on display for everyone to see. This would be fair. This would be right. For many of us who want a just and fair world, we would say this is what needs to happen. But instead, Jesus acts for our care and our protection. We say this often, church. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the cost of something goes away. It means that the one extending forgiveness agrees to pay it instead of demanding it from the one who they are forgiving. You see it? It's why we can say things like, I forgive you, but we don't really do it, do we? So we've still got it there. We're still waiting for some kind of vengeance or some kind of evening out of the playing field. No, that's not how God works towards us. When he says, you are forgiven, remember he says, you'll name him Jesus because he will forgive my people of their sins. 
when forgiveness happens, what God is saying is not just a blanket statement that you're forgiven, but the truth that you, uh, your debt has been paid for and therefore is wiped clean. When we celebrate Advent, when excitement builds for Advent, when we think about who Jesus is and what He came to be, this is at the center of that reality. That Jesus actually came in a posture of humility. Now, it cost Him His reputation, didn't it? Because everyone around Him was like, what kind of king is this? It was exactly the kind of king that we always needed. The shepherd king that God had promised. And because of this, the ancient Christian hymn says, he rightfully takes his place as Lord of all. Listen to how it goes on. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every single name. Now when Paul is writing this, when the Christians are singing this, the Roman oppression is still going on. There are glorious Caesars out there who are controlling the world And when they're saying this, they're saying Jesus is a far greater king, far more powerful, far more glorious. His name is far more weighty than any of that. And therefore, it's at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. When Jesus returns, this is what will happen. Heaven, already happening. On earth, happening in part. Under the earth, not at all. But in Jesus' second advent, this picture comes into full portrait. And the reality is here. So what do we make from the story of Joseph? Where are we? We've paused throughout it to ask the question, what would you do? How would you respond? But the ultimate reality of the story of Joseph that connects to us, and this again might be something you decided a long time ago, uh, but it's important to consider again, is that just like Joseph, I'm here to give you the bad news this morning that you're never going to be king. You're never going to be queen. And you say, gosh, we don't even have a monarchy in this country. I'm not talking about the country, I'm talking about your life, your kingdom. All the things that you try to exert full control over, that give you anxiety, that lead you into depression, all those things. The news of Advent is you're never going to be the king. You're never going to be the queen. You're a builder. You're a tectone. Farmer, teacher, whatever. All important, really good, significant. You're not the king. You're not the queen. See, Joseph came to say, that's a good thing. And the ancient hymn of the Christians asks us to say the same thing. We don't have a wife that Jesus is asking us to marry or a son that we're called to adopt or name, but we do have a knee that we're called to bow. It says, okay, you're king, and I'm not. And not only is that right, 
but it's actually good. And then on top of it, to live as part of this new kingdom that Jesus has established in its simplicity means to be a righteous man or a righteous woman, right? We're not talking about following the law. We're talking about wanting to order your life in the way that God wants you to live. Wanting to do the things that God wants you to do. Wanting to live in a way or a character that God calls us to live. See, before Paul wrote this hymn down to the Philippians, he gave them an exhortation. This is what he said. He said, so in all your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. And so the hymn goes on. Did you see it? <laughs> that God is calling us in this kingdom to be people who are characterized by a posture of humility. Not a humility we create, a humility that rises out of our ever-growing affection and love for God, but a humility, therefore, that is characterized by deference. First and foremost, a deference to God. That's obedient to the things He's calling us to do and to be. And oh, by the way, just like for Joseph, though those things are good, they are hard. And they will have some bearing on how other people view your particular choices. Why would you forgive that person? That's crazy. Why would you live that way? That's crazy. But not just deference for God. The whole thing Paul's really talking about in Philippians here is a deference for each other. That seeks the care and the protection of others. Even the ones who have wronged, harmed, sinned, and betrayed you. Why? Because when you live that way, there is no greater presentation of the gospel. Right? You live that way, why? Because it's been decided long ago that Jesus is king and you're not. For far too long we have thought, oh, the way that people find out about Jesus is they hear sermons or they do these things and whatever. Yeah, those can be effective. Far less effective than someone whose life is radically changed by their obedience to God and care for others. When our world sees that, my guess is it'd be somewhat similar to the angelic messengers to the shepherds or the star that shone in the sky to the magi and said, there's a king that deserves to be served. Can I pray with you?